said, today we're going to jump into our teaching again. We started a series a couple of months ago called We Believe. And this is essentially like really trying to get into the head, the heart, and the hands of the Christian faith. Like what are the things that we believe that the Bible teaches us are sort of critical or foundational to the Christian faith? And last week, we began a new subject, if you will, in the series, talking about what it means to say we are a people who believe in God the Father. And we looked at a summary statement from Jesus about who he says he is in John 17 and why that really matters in our lives. And it was there just before his death on the cross that Jesus taught us how important it is to live our lives deeply believing that God is very real, very alive and active in the world, and that he cares about us. And we talked a good bit about this significant idea that fatherhood, Jesus refers to, to his father in heaven as father for a number of reasons. We talked about the significance of the trust there, the importance of Jesus really feeling like he could bring anything to God. There was a, a beautiful relationship there. And after the cross, that same ability to call God father is provided to us. Really, really interesting passage that talks about a significant theology, who God is, father to us, and what that actually means in our modern lives. That's actually online. I encourage you to listen to that message if you were not here last week. It certainly is a standalone message, but will shape some of what we are talking about today. And so in a small but meaningful way, we tried to answer the question, or to begin answering the question, who is God? And it's important to know this as believers because we live in a world where there is no shortage of opinions and beliefs about who people believe God is or don't believe he is at all. And the role that he plays in our world and the sort of influence he has in our lives, there's a myriad of opinions in the world today. And to give us some proof of that, I shared some facts with you from an article from Christianity Today that talked about the very diverse sort of opinions, even inside the Christian camp, that people have when it comes to God. So knowing who God is is, is important, very critical, it's foundational. Truly understanding who God says he is is critical for our health and growth in Jesus. To, to follow God well, we sort of have to know who he is. And it's equally as important as we live in a world that seems to have growing questions about God, growing confusions about God, it would make sense that one of our responsibilities in knowing God is not just for ourselves. It's actually so that we can be the types of people who can speak to people and accurately answer their questions if they have them about God in our lives. We want people to know and grow in Jesus. We sing these songs on Sundays, you know, that we love you, Christ. We do love Jesus here, but we don't only want to be the people that love Jesus. We want other people to love Christ. And that requires us to be able to engage people and talk to them and answer their questions and share with them the, the concerns that are most pressing in their lives. It is very likely, it's guaranteed that the scripture will address them in some way. And so my hope today is to show us that one of the reasons the scripture declares that we should believe, believe in God, encourages us to believe in God, is because he is true and trustworthy. This is sort of what we started tackling last week. To call God Father in the healthiest sense indicates some form of relational trust. Indicates this reciprocal care that he has for us. He is true and trustworthy. He is a firm foundation worth building our lives upon. And with that said, I want to jump in and look at the only we believe truth that I want to share with you this morning. It's another characteristic or an attribute, if you like to read the theology books, about God. It's one of the things that God tells us about himself. We believe God is the truth, and he is worthy to be followed. Because God is true and trustworthy, we believe that it's worth believing in God because he is a person who cares for us. He's a person who is worth being followed. And I want to share two passages with you this morning. They're brief, and we'll expound upon them, but I want to reread them to you. The first comes from Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God, the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. All throughout the Old Testament, you will find this teaching on God. He is the truth. The God. That's one of the distinctions 
that the people of God have in the Old Testament from the rest of the world that they live in. The Israelites saw God and recognized him as the God, the truth. And in John 16, we see, moving into the New Testament, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And in quotes here, we put God's truth. This is not in the scripture, but the truth that is being spoken about in John, the, the truth that the Holy Spirit is meant to lead us to, is God's truth. In both testaments, what you will find is this incredibly uh, significant, an incredible significance about understanding what the truth is, knowing who God is, and applying it into our lives. And so one of the most important characteristics God wants us to know about him is that he is the truth. I share with you a small cross-section of these ideas, but they are found all in the Bible. And the reason I read these verses to you from Jeremiah and John is because they help us to more deeply understand why believing God is the true God matters. You know, why that actually matters. We say this, we affirm this as Christians, but what is the significance of this? Is it just sort of a statement the Bible tells us to utter, or is there a real reason that we are to declare this in our hearts? And how does this apply to our everyday lives? And so in Jeremiah, we learn that God is the true God. He is eternal. He is alive. He is well. He is working in the world as we speak. And that was the subject of our message last week. In John, we layer another truth here, a layer that gives us something to think about when it comes to our responsibility to God's truth. It's here that Jesus tells us, God in the flesh, right, says, listen, my truth was never meant to be hidden. It was never meant to be secret. It was never meant to be locked away in the heavens, far from you and I as people. It was never seen by God as some mysterious set of spiritual riddles that we had to sort of claw our way to. What we learn about the truth in John is that God desires his people to know his truth. He desires the world to know his truth, to understand his truth, and to live by his truth. And this is such a significant matter to God that he not only sends Jesus to the earth to reveal his truth to us, after Jesus ascends into heaven, he then sends his Holy Spirit, who the scripture teaches us will guide us into the truth. So at every point in the scripture, God's truth is available to people, and God has given us ways, really these are immeasurable graces that God has given us to see, sense, and know his truth. The most significant today is his Holy Spirit, whom Jesus calls the Spirit of Truth. He guides us to the truth of God, and he also helps us to remain in the truth of God. He doesn't only illuminate it in our hearts, he actually is, gives us the ability to, to sort of retain it in our hearts, to live by it. He is sort of like the glue that cements these truths in our hearts. And so in both places, Jeremiah and John, God is communicating something very important to us about who he is, about why it's important to understand what we believe about God. He's teaching us something about his character. And he's saying, the reason I can be trusted and followed, the reason you should consider trusting and follow me, is because I can guide you into the truth. And it's not just a truth. He guides us into all truth, the truth, because he is the ultimate source of truth. Now, I want to share something with you from uh, someone I've quoted in this room before. It's a gentleman named Wayne Grudem. He's a super intelligent pastor and theologian. And he wrote something about these ideas. I want to share them with you this morning. They'll be behind me. It's from a book called 20 Basic Beliefs Every Christian Should Know. I'd encourage you to pick that up and read it if you have some free time. If not, you can follow along with what we're going to talk about here. But it's sort of an interesting perspective on this. He says, the Lord is the true God. And we just read that from Jeremiah 10.10. 10. And the implication of this is significant. What this means is all God's knowledge and all his words are both true and the final standard of truth. Once he says something, here's why this matters. Once he says something, we can count on it. We can count on him to be forever faithful to his promises, which is a direct reference to Numbers 23, 19. Not the only reference, but a direct one. 
In fact, the essence of true faith is taking God at his word and relying on him to do as he promised. I want you to think about this for a moment. The Christian faith is really a series of promises that God makes to us. And we are invited to engage these promises, in these promises. This is some really deep stuff with profound application in our lives, if you think about it. What this person is saying, Wayne Grudem, what Jeremiah is teaching us, what John is teaching us, is that truth isn't just something that God knows. God doesn't just know what a perfect truth is. Because one of the things that makes God God is that he is the author of truth. It's not just something he possesses. The Bible teaches us that he actually is the truth. It's one of the things that makes God God, that he is the truth. He is the origin of truth. He is the truth and he wants us to know and live in his truth. And so doing so helps us to live in the ways that we were created to live. God's truthfulness is the reason that we can have an absolute trust and confidence in the promises of God. I mean, think about this. When God says, I'm a God of hope, I'm a God of peace, I'm a God of joy, I'm a God who transcends your circumstances, why do we believe that to be true? Why should we sort of throw the lot of our life into adhering to those promises if we question the character of God, if we're unsure about the fact that he really wants to be our hope and our joy and our light? We can follow God in a trustworthy way because God is truth. He can't be anything but truth. And that is the reason we can have so many of the promises we have in our lives. Think about this. When you came to Jesus, if you're in Jesus in this room, at some point, you trusted in a promise. You trusted in the fact that Jesus said, every person on earth is fallen. Every person on earth needs to know my grace. And I am here to offer it to you. What is it that causes us to believe? What is it that actually says, hey, Jesus, I do believe that I struggle with sin. And unless I have you in my life, unless I see the cross as you present it to the world, I can't know God the Father. What is it that actually causes us to do that? What is it that makes us take that step? Well, a big part of it is the fact that we're learning to trust that who God says he is and what God says he does is something we can take to the bank. So when God says, I offer you forgiveness of sin, we have to be able to trust that and believe that. That is the journey of the Christian faith. It's learning to believe more deeply and trust more substantially in the promises of God. And we can do this. We can believe in God because his character merits that statement. When we say we want to trust God, he is the type of God that actually can garner trust because he's proven to be faithful. That's the story of the scripture. And those of us who have walked on this earth for some time, we likely have a series of hardships in our lives. But we also have learned to trust and rest in God through Jesus. It's pretty profound if you think about that. It's a very freeing thing if you think about that, that above all else in this world, even when the world lets us down, we serve a God who actually promises to never let us down. It's pretty beautiful. It's pretty powerful. It is one of the the key elements of who God is. It is the truth. But here's what's interesting about this. This truth teaching, as beautiful as it is for some of us to believe, those of us who have affirmed it, we sort of recognize the sweet side of it. For some people in our world, this is a really hard thing for them to believe. They have a really hard time sort of thinking about the fact that there is somebody named God who says, listen, I'm not just a truth, I'm the truth. And this is because of that little word that precedes the word truth in both of these passages. It's the word the. Okay, what's interesting about this, if you're an English head or, you know, you've read it any of these original languages, the word the in English is a definite article. And what it means is, it's funny, it's a word that actually has no value by itself. If I were to get up here for 38 or 39 minutes, which is about how long one of my teachings is, and said the for 39 minutes straight, you would walk out of here being like, what, what just happened there? Like, the word has absolutely no importance until you put it in front of another word. 
when you put the word the in front of another word, it has a great amount of importance because it entirely changes the meaning of what that word says. And my favorite way to illustrate this is as follows. Let's just say I just met you for the first time today, okay, in the theater of uh, the hallways of our theater. And after, after our worship gathering, we go out into the foyer and we, we get a chance to sort of talk for a few minutes. And we do what people do when they first meet. We start to introduce ourselves to each other. And standing next to me is a woman. And you're not sure who that woman is. I mean, it would be, you could probably make some assumptions that this woman is Corinne, my wife. But it would be smart to sort of figure out who that is first before we assume anything. Maybe it's my sister or something. Who knows? But we say, hey, I'm Anthony. Hey, I'm so-and-so. Uh, this is my wife. Well, my wife introduces herself. Or I say, you say, who is that? And I say, this is, this is, this is my wife, okay? Now, Corinne. Now, based on our English lesson here, there are two ways that we can sort of look at this. When you ask me who this person is, the first and most natural response, because I am married to my wife, Corinne, would be for me to say, this is my wife, Corinne. And the assumption in that response is that she's only my wife, just one wife, right? The wife, it's a definite article. However, if after this worship service, we were talking in the foyer, and I said something to the effect of, hey, this is a wife, you would have an incredibly different perspective, right? Hey, who is this? So this is a wife, all right? Follow me here. The assumption here is that I'm no longer using the definite article. And what this means is she's one of many wives that I have, right? One of many wives. I did have to pass that background check before I became the pastor, right? One tiny word, huge implication. Practically speaking, the first response leads me to a potential life of marital bliss. The other greatly increases my chances of being offered a leading role in a reality TV series called something like The Disgruntled Pastor's Wives of Volusia County, right? That's, that's basically what's going to happen if I have eight wives, okay? It's hard enough to be right with just one. Here's my point in all of this, okay? In Jeremiah and in John, the Bible isn't describing God as one of many truths. It doesn't ever refer to him as a truth. It describes him regularly as the truth. Little word, massive implication. And this is pointedly true in what Jesus says in John. There he says the Holy Spirit reveals and guides us to the truth, to all truth, God's truth. This interesting truth, there are many of them, but the foundation of the truth, what we believe in, it's, it's a truth that humanity has really rebelled against. And that is why God provides his truth and offers it to us regularly. It's this, this idea that we were born into this perfect and beautiful relationship with God. And then sin entered the world and humankind sinned against God, and the garden became anything but perfect. It's this perfect standard of truth. In all ways, when God is teaching us about his truth, he's reminding us of what it means to be his creation and what it means to be in a right and healthy relationship with him. His truth is meant to be a truth that defines the truths of the world. It's meant to be sifted. All truth is meant to be sifted through his truth, for the Christian anyways. A truth that has largely been abandoned by the very people created to live in it. We wouldn't need the Spirit to guide us into truth. We wouldn't need these proclamations in Jeremiah if everybody was living in the truth. We're not. So God in his grace provides ways for us to understand the truth. And what makes this hard, a few things to think about here, is if, if you've personally experienced this truth in Jesus, if you can like, define in your heart what it means to live in the grace of Christ, you, you know that this is a very beautiful word, right? It's a very beautiful truth. However, think about for a moment what it was like when you first heard these truths. Or maybe you've never affirmed these truths in your heart. 
when you first heard about these ideas of sin and redemption and the cross of Christ and Jesus dying on it for us and the grace of God, it was very likely a mixed bag of emotions. That how it, that's how it is for most everybody I speak to, including myself. They're like bittersweet truths because in one sense, you have to sort of recognize these realities. You have to sort of recognize the need for grace in our lives because there's a problem of sin. That's how it usually is for most people. However, when we move past the bittersweet paradigm, when we actually taste of that truth, when the grace of Jesus penetrates our hearts and we really begin to follow Christ and we know what his grace means, God's truth becomes something very different in our lives. It's no longer bittersweet. It's actually deeply refreshing and satisfying. In fact, the more you experience and live in the grace of God, the more likely you are to recognize that it is a never-ending spring of life that is meant to feed your soul and sustain you. And so grace is funny. It's it's pretty offensive at first, but the more you dwell in it, the more likely you are to desire it. God's goodness and his grace become something no longer bitter, but they actually are something deeply beautiful to us, something that we should desire to know more deeply and without question help others to see and experience. God's grace in our lives should make us people who are gracious. Now, on the contrary, this will be a very hard sip of water for some people to swallow because we live in a world where people are often much more comfortable with making up their own truth and living their lives by it if you sort of have this philosophy in life, then what happens is this will be a very difficult truth to embrace because you're going to have to reconcile that maybe some of the things we think are true might not be as true as we thought they are. There's no judgment in what I'm saying. This is a very real place where people come from. I'm just saying we need to be mindful that if there is such a thing as the truth, what God says, then we should be very cautious about what we embrace as truths in our life because those truths ultimately become a, a north star in which the, the, the direction of our life will follow after. And so while we in the Christian faith believe this deeply, it is worth knowing that some people can't even imagine the idea that there could be a God who is the truth at all. They, they can't even get to that. Or they might say, well, you know what? I believe there is a God, and he could be true, but I'm just saying that I think it's okay for you to believe in a God who is your truth as long as you know that there are many truths in this world, and they all lead us to the same place. This is sort of like the old adage that says, look, look, even if there is a truth out there, then nobody, just, nobody can really know it or claim to have it, and that's why we just shouldn't say it. And, but, but also know that all those truths we can't know or have will all lead us to the same place in life. It's sort of like a spaghetti jumble of belief, and it's not entirely accurate. But it is one of the most common responses people have to this ever-so-important idea of truth that we're talking about today. And I wish I could say that the only place I hear it is from people who are far from God. That's not true. Over the years, it's become a common statement even for believers to utter. And it utters, it sort of comes out of us in very sophisticated ways. I'll get to it here in a moment. And I want to say here that while I disagree with this statement, uh, I do believe deeply that we need to be a people who are empathetic towards it. Because every one of us, in order to deeply know Jesus, we had to, we had to deal with this at some point. And so we don't want to become hard and callous to folks who are trying to address what it means for God to say, I'm the truth. We want to be a people who become a bridge to help folks understand that. This is why it's important to understand who God is. Because think about this. Why is this so hard for some people to sort of swallow? Why was it hard for you to swallow? When you choose to believe God's truth in Christ like this, it means you're crowning something that isn't you, the Lord of your life. What happens here is you're actually saying, no longer am I going to live by these truths, the ones that I think work best for me. I'm going to now sort of take the throne, the, the throne of my life, which I sit upon. I'm going to remove myself from it. And put this guy named Jesus, who says he's my Lord, on it. Listen to me. It is healthy for us to be cautious about this. Because that is a major life decision. 
And there should be no decision in life this significant. Anything that revolves around us reorienting our lives around truth, we should never take that lightly. That's why I say we should be very empathetic here. In fact, there's a, there's a, a major amount of wisdom in this. There is a place in our lives where we have to wrestle with this. Why we do believe in God, or why we do not believe that God is real, or we believe he is one of many truths. The Christian faith sort of asks us to consider what it means to have God be the truth governing our lives. Not multiple truths, but his truth. And that's what the scripture is, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And so for the remainder of our time, I'd like to weigh this truth claim on the scales of our heart. I don't want to assume in any way that all of us universally agree on truth. And I certainly don't want to assume that as we move into our workplaces, our school environments, our social circles, that the world has this homogenous idea of what truth is. In fact, what we shared last week showed the exact opposite. Even in the camp of those who claim to know the truth of God, the diversity is staggering. Meaning, not just a diversity in small ways, but in significant and foundational ways. And so today there are some people that will say, this is exactly what I find objectionable about Christianity. I think it's just straight up arrogant to claim that the Christian faith has a God that says what he says is true is true for everyone. Now, let me say something here. I'm not arguing that there are not times when people have uh, spoke these truths in arrogant ways. That is a problem. In other words, if ever we are at a place in our lives where we believe that God is true and that sort of creates a superiority complex in us, that's, that's a problem. That is sinful, really. That should create some serious levels of humility in us. What I am saying here, though, is that some people, even sort of speaking to kind people, have a hard time believing that there can be any type of truth like this at all. And believers are not exempt from this feeling either. Maybe you have some of this thinking in your heart. I know I have it in my heart at, at times. There are seasons in life where this rears its head even in the life of the Christian. For example, maybe you believe in God, capital G, but you have a really hard time wanting to follow what God says is good and true for your life in the Scripture. So when you open that book and you read stuff and you're like, I disagree with that. It is absolutely okay to disagree with that. But the life of the Christian, a person genuinely trying to follow Jesus, we should be saying something like this. I disagree with that. But if the Bible is really God's truth and God is all truth, then I've got to figure out why it is I disagree with this. We've got to make a space for wrestling with this stuff. If we come to the place in the scripture where we're like, I disagree with that and we move on, that's a real issue. That's believing in God, capital G, uh, but not God, lowercase g. Like the God of everyday life, the God in the mundane moments of life who speaks into every area of our lives. We have a hard time trusting that what he says is true and right. And therefore, we just ignore the stuff we don't care about or move past the stuff we disagree with. Maybe, some examples here, maybe you have a hard time forgiving. This is so common in people's lives. They can hear about the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, but they cannot show it to others. That is a hard reality. Maybe you lack the desire to be gentle with other people. Or maybe you have you know, challenges with being generous with your time or your finances. Maybe you sort of look at the cross and recognize it's the apex example of God's generosity to the world. He gives his son on it. He pours his life out for the world. Yet we have hard times sort of pouring ourselves out for people. All of this, whatever it may be, the root of this issue is all the same. Whether it is pure unbelief or unbelief in elements of who God is and who he sets us apart to be, at times people have a hard time believing that because God is the truth, what he says for us is always truthful and the best thing for our lives. Now, I'm not trying to be idealistic here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have challenges. I'm just saying to truly follow Jesus means the assumption we should have as we approach challenges is why does, why does God say this? Why are these things true? And how is it that I can see my heart wrapped around them in a way to where I affirm them and believe them in the very same way that God has given them to me? 
And so this idea of truth, whether it's, hey, I believe in 100 truths, or I believe in the God of the Bible, but I just act like a lot of it isn't in there, that stuff, you know, when it comes to our personal lives. There's a really famous old world fable that I want to share with you this morning. This is how we'll begin to wrap up. It sort of gives us a good object lesson here. It's an old world fable that has been used to point out that it's impossible for people to know the truth like God talks about in Scripture. This is sort of like we might consider it a parable in the ancient and the modern world. And I promise you that even if you have never heard this story I'm about to share with you, it is likely that you have people in your life that believe what it teaches. Or there have been times in your own life, as in mine, where we have sort of embraced it. That there are many truths you can live your life by. And because nobody can really ever know truth, you just have to pick the one that works best for you. And that is not always the best thing for us to do with our lives. There are many truths that are offered in our world that are complete falsities and will ruin us if we pursue them. That's why it's important to recognize there is a truth to sort of hold that against. And so it's a story of six blind men who come to visit a powerful king. And I want to really emphasize that these are six blind men. That will matter all throughout the story. And what happens is, is they take this long journey. They believe this sort of comes from the ancient world. So it's the king or a raja. It's essentially like an Indian type story. And what happens here is these folks are migrating through a lot of wilderness and they eventually enter the courtyard of the king or the raja that they come to see. They've come to sort of engage with and get to know a little bit. And as they come into the courtyard, remember they're blind, there is a massive elephant in the middle of the courtyard. And because these men are blind, they, they do not know what it is. So they kind of they, they stumble upon this thing and each one of them in their own ways is trying to figure out what is in front of them. In their own ways, they, they start touching the elephant. And the story goes on like this. The first of the six blind men, he puts his hand out and he touches the side of an elephant. If you've ever seen an elephant, you know they're massive, right? And what he says to the other blind men is, man, this is super smooth, so uh, this, this must be a wall. Clearly what is in front of us is a wall. And so the second blind man then goes ahead, go ahead and bring that image up real quick. Listen, thank you. The second blind man, he touches the trunk of the elephant, okay? He goes down there and he says, how round this thing is. Clearly, this is some type of large snake, massive snake that we're looking at. The third blind man puts out his hand and touches the tusk of the elephant. And he says, you're both wrong. This isn't a wall. This isn't a snake. This is clearly some type of a weapon. It's pointed at the end. This is obviously a spear. The fourth blind man puts out his hand and he touches the leg of the elephant. And he declares how tall this thing is. It's amazing. What is in front of us is a tree. This is a big tree in the middle of this courtyard. You're all wrong. The fifth blind man reaches out his hand and he touches the ear of an elef the elephant. And he says, well, this is wide and sort of soft to the touch. This is clearly some type of a fan. This is meant to keep the king cool. There's a big fan in the middle of the courtyard. Finally, the sixth man, the blind man puts out his hand and he touches the tail of the elephant. And he says, you're all fools. I declare this is a rope. It's long, it's thin, it's skinny. This is a rope. And so what's happening here is they've all touched the elephant. Each blind man thinking he's right, his own perception of the elephant is the correct one. They just start to argue. They're all trying to convince each other as to why what they believe is in front of them is what they actually believe is in front of them. Why this is the truth. And after some time, the king, who's up in his balcony, he hears all this ruckus in the courtyard, and he wakes up, and he looks out over the courtyard, and he gets the attention of these six blind men. He yells for their attention. And they actually, they hear him and they begin to listen to them. And what he says is, listen, you guys have woken me up and I need you all to know that you're all wrong. None of you are right about what is in front of you. He said, what you all are touching is a very big animal. It's not a wall or a spear or a rope or a fan or the trunk of a tree. It's an elephant. 
but none of you are sort of sophisticated enough or wise enough. You don't have the sight to see what is in front of you. Therefore, for all of you to sit that you can believe that you can think that you can know the whole truth is just wrong. And so these six blind men who have now been enlightened by the king's revelation, they realize that they're all wrong. And they sort of agree upon the fact that they don't have the whole truth. None of them could have it. And they were just arrogant in believing so. Now, the point of this popular fable is in many ways the modern battle cry of the human heart when it comes to truth. The story is trying to say that all of us and the truth are like the blind men in the story. As mortals, no one has the capability to see the whole picture in life. Therefore, no one can claim that they have the truth. And this is obviously a very serious objection that needs to be addressed if we are to believe God is the truth. Whether you do not believe in God at all or you have a really hard time following him as he says he is, it is important that we sort of recognize why believing God is true and trustworthy, why that actually matters, and why Jesus says in the New Testament that he gives us his truth to live by. As sophisticated as this story sounds, there are at least three reasons why this story is sort of failing to prove the point that it claims to make, that nobody can know the truth. This is the most pronounced theory on truth the modern world has. And I just want to share with you some thoughts about this. It is not my desire to slam dunk anything in your face this morning. I just want you to think about this. If you're a person who has, a trouble, with the tr has trouble with the truth, or you know people that have trouble with the truth, they sort of utter this idea, think about this in light of this story. So in a story that's meant to prove that there is no such thing as truth, I find it interesting that we even have conversations on this earth about what truth is. What the story shows us is that there actually is an elephant. Whether you want to believe the elephant is there or not, or you want to think that the elephant is something else, the story clearly points out, it represents that there is such a thing as the whole truth. And interestingly enough, the men in this story are all trying to find out what it is. It's kind of hard to believe in a world where we are constantly trying to figure out what truth is and we have all these opinions on it, that we've missed the point that we're discussing the idea of truth. It's out there. It's just that we have very diverse opinions on what we think it might be. And so to say there is no such thing as truth, or that truth is so blurry that it's sort of something you can't even grab onto, it's kind of silly when you think about how significant and common this conversation is in the world that we live in. I don't think we're having this conversation for no reason. We're having this conversation because, sort of like these six men, people are trying to find out what the truth is. There's an elephant. That's the first thing worth talking about. There is truth. Secondly, and this is perhaps the most pointed reality for those of us who have either embraced this or deal with people who do. Secondly, the only way you can use this story or the only way that you can sort of confidently claim that there is no such thing as the truth or nobody can really know truth in a serious way is if you become the only person in the world who believes they have the whole truth. I want you to think about this for a moment. To be able to say there is no truth means you have give, been given some sort of thought process that the rest of us don't have. And the problem with believing this way is rather obvious. Because in one breath, this person declares that they ha no, no one has the ability to know what the truth is. That's just not out there. Jeremiah 10.10, 10, that's fooey. Nobody can know that stuff. While simultaneously declaring that they alone have the whole truth about the truth. In order to say there isn't a truth, or this one isn't real, you have to be running your life by some sort of superior truth. What happens here is they just declare truth as unknowable. And so this would be like the exact opposite of what we read in Jeremiah and John, where God is sort of confidently declaring to us that there is truth and it's him. This person is saying there is no truth or there are many truths. And what happens is, is they become godlike in their ability to judge all truth. They are literally forcing the truth, their truth on you, 
while telling you there's no such thing as the truth like God speaks of. It's a bit of a problem. And the last thing, what I find interesting about this story, is a pretty significant error regarding the king. So I find this pretty profound. The moral of this story is trying to teach us that we're all blind in life and nobody can see or know truth. Only somebody who isn't blind can help these men see in this story. In this story, right, the king doesn't, the king doesn't even get addressed. There is a king. We're all focused on the blindness of the men. But this interesting thing happens at the back end of the story. There's this guy called the king. And he is able to see in its entirety the elephant. He is able to see and fill in all the gaps of what the blind men cannot see. And in the story, what happens is the king alone knows the truth. And in his goodness, I find this awesome, he freely shares it with the blind men. In other words, he, he opens their, their eyes to the truth. He says, it's an elephant. You don't have to believe me, but if you want to believe me, it's, it's an elephant. There's the truth. What's most ironic about the most, the most common belief, maybe even objection against this type, of, this type of teaching in the Christian faith, this sort of modern-day parable about truth and belief, is that in an effort to disprove there is a God who is the truth, it actually proves there is a king who knows the truth and that he freely gives it to those who want to know it. And so in closing, I'll say this. I want to sort of highlight the irony here and then leave us on a real word of hope. The deep irony inherent in this God is truth objection, whether we are Christians who have a hard time embracing that or we're dealing with folks who just have a hard time embracing the idea of God being truth at all, is that in the scripture it's clearly talked about. And I can tell you, I can't speak for your experiences, but I can speak for mine. I have yet to this day in my life had a conversation with somebody. If we're talking about the significant matters of life, I've yet to meet a person who does not have some type of truth they are living their life by. Even those who say there is no truth, or, you know, life is like a bowl of jello, we just got to wiggle our way through these 70 or 80 years. There is something, even if it's a wiggly bowl of jello, there is some truth directing that person's life. There is some true north they have decided to, whether it's knowingly or unknowingly, they've tried to sort of orient their, their life around. Maybe it's friends and relationships. Maybe you're a family man or a family woman. Maybe it's a relationship, you know, it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or uh, a really important relationship with a child. Maybe it's a church. Maybe it's success in the workplace. Maybe you're thinking, hey, a bigger house, if I can just follow that truth, I'll feel good in life. Or a nicer car, if I can just get to that, I'll feel better in life. Maybe you believe that if somebody or something or if you can just control your circumstances, if you can make every problem go away and check all the boxes that you think will bring peace in your life, if you can do this, then you really will have hope and peace in life. Your true north is trying to eradicate the things that sort of cause you pain or suffering, whatever it is. I've yet to meet a person who doesn't have a truth they're living their life by. And since we know that none of these things can fully satisfy us in life, everything I mentioned and the thousands of things that I don't have time to mention, all of them can satisfy us, but none of them can satisfy us in perfect and everlasting ways. What would it be like for us to be a people who trade a truth or these truths for the truth? What would it be like if we said all these things, which are not inherently wrong by themselves, what if we actually saw them in light of God and we were able to sort of be fulfilled and satisfied in Christ, no matter what those areas of our lives look like. None of these things can fully satisfy us. No truth, lowercase a, a truth, can fully satisf satisfy us. But the truth can. And what we believe is sort of simple. It's simple to declare. That's why we're spending two weeks talking about it. It's like a handful of words. But it is really something that deeply impacts your whole life. That we believe God is real. We believe God is noble. And we believe that he wants to be a part of our lives.
That is the truth that God desires us to understand about him, that he cares for us. And he has made ways upon ways for us to actually believe that and know that and understand that. And when we sort of press into that truth, we're given an unassailable truth. It's a truth that can't be robbed from us. It's a truth that can't be taken from us or sort of compromised because it is God's truth. It is an impenetrable brick wall. It's an unassailable truth in Christ that really can sustain us in this life and provide us this beautiful eternity in the next. And I will say, you may be the final judge of this, but that seems much better to me than blindly stumbling through life, going from truth to truth, trying to see what actually satisfies us. And this type of truth we speak about today, the truth, all truth, is only found in knowing God the Father through Jesus the Son. And so as we move into our response time today, as we sort of get back into our world and embrace the rhythms of life that far exceed the boundaries of this room, I just want you to think about this. Ask yourself, do you know God's truth? Do you have objections to it? Do you have stuff you're dealing with in it? That's all good. I want to challenge you to think about that stuff and to pray about that. Talk to somebody about that. And I want to ask you if you have God's truth in your heart. If you, if you believe in God that he has given you the truth in Christ, ask yourself, what is that doing in your life? How is it shaping your heart? Has it made you a person of great humility and grace? A person who desires to, with great empathy, share this truth when the opportunities are afforded to you? by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Let's think about these things and pray on these things as we move into our response time.